0: Our passage for this morning is Matthew 26, 26-29. If you would please open your Bibles there. Matthew 26, 26-29. In today's message, we're going to be taking a look at the Lord's table. Uh, and with this in mind, I want to take a little bit different approach to this morning's passage. Uh, as you know, I preach verse by verse through the Scripture, and there are a number of reasons as to why I do this. But one of the main reasons is because, uh, that I practice this form of preaching uh, is, is because I practice this form of preaching known as expository preaching. I don't know if you're really familiar with that term, expository preaching, but basically all it means is that when I preach, I try to expose or explain the meaning of the text. This is where a lot of people get expository preaching wrong. They think expository preaching is simply preaching that goes verse by verse through the scripture, and that's not necessarily true. Expository preaching is preaching that tries to explain the original meaning of the text. Now, of course, that probably sounds like common sense, but actually it's not. Not all the forms of, of preaching do that. Very often preachers will start with their own conclusions or what they want to talk about, and then they'll use the text to address or support that. Uh, expository preaching is different because it starts first with what the original author intended to communicate to his audience when he wrote and then draw its points from that. The reason why expository preaching, then, is so closely associated with a verse-by-verse format is not because verse-by-verse is necessarily expository, nor is it because expository preaching only moves verse-by-verse through the Scripture. Rather, it's because it's easier to capture the original intent of a passage when you're moving verse-by-verse through the Scriptures and seeing each Scripture in the setting of its original context. That's why I usually move verse-by-verse through the Scriptures, because as an expository preacher, I don't try to address a particular topic and then simply use the text to support my conclusions. I'm trying to draw my points from the text. I want to start with what the Scripture has to say and then illustrate and apply those points to your life. What this means practically is that as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, what I normally try to do is is capture the narrative setting of each text we address and then pull our points from that context. Last week we saw... I think, a really good example of this. Uh, If you were here with us last week, I noted that one of the major themes of the Gospel of Matthew is is to attempt to present Jesus as the great Messianic King. Uh, From this point, we noted that Matthew arranges the material at the beginning of Matthew 26 to demonstrate that Jesus demonstrated sovereign authority over the circumstances of His death. That was a major concern. For Matthew's readers, they wanted to know if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's going to conquer all of Israel's enemies and judge the earth, then how come he was betrayed by one of his own disciples? I mean, was he simply that blind? And how come the religious authorities were able to seize him and kill him? Is he really that weak? And Matthew's answer to those questions was, no, absolutely not. Jesus died because he meant to. That's a different point than what, say, John or Luke pull out as they explain the events surrounding Jesus' death. Matthew focuses on Jesus' sovereign authority as king. John, for instance, focuses more on Jesus' authority as God. Luke appears to focus a little bit more on the sacrificial nature of these events, of, of Jesus offering himself up for his disciples. They all address Judas' betrayal, but they pull out a different emphasis in each account. I form my points off of the emphasis that the author puts to these historical events, not whatever thoughts I might have about it. And that's, I think, really how it should be, right? After all, the the authors are inspired. I'm not. With that being said, I want to go off script this week, and I want to talk less about the Lord's Table as it is applied here in the Gospel of Matthew. And instead, I want to discuss what this ordinance means as a whole. In other words, I want us to take a step back, and rather than simply explore the implications of what Matthew says about the Lord's table. I want to discuss what the New Testament as a whole says about this event. The reason for this is because although Christianity is not a religion that's, that's hung up on many observances, in fact, we really only have two mandated religious ordinances, which are the Lord's table and baptism, even still, very often the meaning of those observances aren't formally taught. Uh, for instance, I can remember when I first became a Christian, I was going to church for over a year, Before it dawned on me and I asked the church leadership, uh, so do you think maybe at some point I should be baptized? I mean, the the importance of baptism just wasn't stressed very often. So it hadn't occurred to me until then. And that's not unusual. In fact, although I've been teaching here for coming up on five years now, I can think of only one instance where we as a church have provided an in-depth explanation of the meaning of the Lord's table in a corporate setting. And that was at the very beginning of the church plan about five years ago. Now, obviously, that's not because we're trying to avoid teaching on the subject. It's, it's just, it just hasn't been convenient. Again, I go verse by verse through Matthew, and it hasn't come up before now. In our Sunday school classes, we haven't been addressing topics that would naturally bring it up, at least not until this quarter. So it just hasn't come up. Well, today, finally, it has. We're in Matthew 26, 26, 26-29. In this passage, Matthew discusses the Lord's table. And while my natural instinct is to simply preach this passage in its context, when I consider that we have not provided any in-depth instruction on the Lord's table in nearly five years, I think the better course is to break form and instead use this text as a launching point for a discussion of the Lord's table as a whole. Considering that the Lord Jesus has only given two ordinances for His church to observe, and considering that we observe this particular ordinance monthly. Uh, This is just too essential of a point to cover only in part. Jesus obviously considered this ordinance to be very important to the life of the church. Surely this means that we need a comprehensive picture of its meaning. We've already talked a lot about worship lately in Sunday school, and and if you've been a part of that class, then you know that one of the things that God demands in worship is sincerity. And sincerity means meaning the things you do or say in worship. Do you know what you're doing when you participate in the Lord's table? Do you know what Jesus intended for this event? And and is that the mindset that you bring when you celebrate this ordinance with the church? If you're unsure how to answer that question, then today's message, I hope, should probably help. My goal for this morning is to simply answer the question, what is the Lord's table? What is the Lord's table? What does it mean? What does it celebrate? I hope to answer those questions uh, for you today. Once again, I'm I'm taking a different approach to this passage, so my structure is going to be a little bit different than normal as well. Uh, If you look on the back of your bulletin, for instance, I've typed out a definition of the Lord's table. And rather than going through our normal two or three points or however many points based on the morning's passage, I want to instead walk you step by step through this definition, tying in this morning's passage as much as I can. So just as a heads up, I want to let you know it's going to feel less like a sermon this morning and probably more like a lecture. Uh, Sort of think of this like a classroom for today rather than a chapel. You know, Imagine there's a a blackboard up here instead of a pulpit because that's going to be our approach. Let's begin by reading this morning's passage and then we'll look at the definition together. Uh, Once again, I'm going to try to explain this definition from this morning's passage as much as I can as we go, so let's be familiar with both of these items up front. First, the passage. As Matthew continues to narrate the events leading up to Jesus' death, he writes this in Matthew 26, 26-29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, uh, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there we have Matthew's depiction of the Lord's table. I'm going to try to tie that into our definition as much as I can this morning. Let's look now at the definition. If you flip over to the back of your bulletin, I've defined the Lord's table like this. The Lord's table is an ordinance that commemorates the death of Christ and symbolizes a participation in and anticipation of the new covenant through faith in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and, B, fellowship with Jesus Christ and all those who likewise believe in Him and await His second coming. That's how I would define the Lord's table based on the Scripture's revelation about this event. So if you want to know what you're celebrating when you participate in the Lord's table later this morning, that's how I'd summarize it in a single sentence. So what does this definition mean? Let's walk through it step by step. And we do have a lot, of, uh, a lot of ground to cover here, so I'm going to move through these steps probably at a pretty good clip. Uh, first, what we see in this definition is this. The Lord's Table is an ordinance. It's an ordinance. An ordinance properly defined is a religious right which has been commanded or prescribed by a religious authority. In the case of the church, while there are many commands that have been given To us by Christ and the apostles, there are only two religious rites that have been prescribed for ongoing practice in the church, and that's baptism and the Lord's table. There are some branches of Christianity that would add in foot washing, actually as a third ordinance based on John 13, 13 13-15, but generally it's agreed that there are only two ordinances, uh, baptism and the Lord's table. We see the command uh, to baptize in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen to 20, when Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Uh, make disciples is actually the command in that sentence. And baptism is a, is a present participle that modifies the command, telling the disciples how they are to make disciples. They are to make disciples in part, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we see the command spelled out in Matthew 28. And of course, as we uh, get into the book of Acts and into the epistles of the New Testament, we see multiple examples of this rite being performed, not only by the apostles, but even by those who came after the apostles as well. So that's the first religious rite we see commanded by Christ for the church. The second is is the Lord's table. If you're just looking here at Matthew 26... It's probably hard to discern that this is indeed a religious ordinance, a religious rite. After all, if you look at the commands, there's nothing specifically about the commands here that indicate Jesus intends for this to be repeated. It looks rather like a one-time event describing what Jesus is about to do for the disciples at the cross. They are to take that bread and eat. They are to take that cup and drink. And that's it. It all appears to be confined to that historical meal. That's how it's depicted in Matthew. And it's how it's depicted in Mark as well. However, the tone changes once you begin to look at Luke's and Paul's account of this meal. Uh, Luke, of course, was a traveling companion of Paul. He did extensive research on the life and ministry of Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that both his and Paul's versions of these events line up pretty closely. And both men indicate that Jesus clearly told his disciples at the time he observed this meal that this was an observance he intended for the disciples to practice continually until the time of his return. In Luke, the Lord says regarding the bread, uh, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord dispenses the bread with virtually those exact same words. And then regarding the cup, he also says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It should be noted that in both instances, the word for do this is a present imperative command. And what that tends to indicate is that this is a continual, ongoing command. This idea is, continually do this in remembrance of me. The statement, as often as you drink it, with reference to the cup, likewise indicates that this was to be a continual practice in the church. And of course, just like baptism, that's what we find as we explore the rest of the New Testament. In fact, Paul's comments on the Lord's table come as he's giving instruction to the church on the proper observance of the meal. So we can see that this is the second ordinance commanded by Christ. And that's actually how Paul presents the Lord's Table, by the way, as a direct command from Christ, saying in 1 Corinthians 11.23, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. He's just passing on to the church what Jesus had apparently told him directly. So baptism and the Lord's Table are ordinances commanded by Christ. And I should probably emphasize these are religious rites, meaning that they're formal ceremonial observances of the Christian faith. Uh, They're different from other commands given by Jesus in that these are a more direct application in the context of Christian community and worship. They're the kinds of things that are practiced exclusively among the Christian, Christian community as a part of their membership and worship, and they're not to be observed by outsiders. We'll probably talk about that some next week, but... Uh, You'll hopefully see what I mean as we go along. But that's the first part of our definition. The Lord's Table is an ordinance, meaning it's a religious rite commanded by the Lord Jesus Himself. Next, it is an ordinance that commemorates the death of Christ. It commemorates the death of Christ. I've already pointed out how in Luke 22 and in 1 Corinthians 11, when Jesus distributes the elements, He tells the disciples, do this in remembrance of Me. In remembrance of me. This is where we get the idea that the Lord's Table is a commemoration. Just like we have Memorial Day in a few weeks to remember those who died on behalf of our country. uh, And Veterans Day in November to celebrate those who have served in the armed forces. Just like we remember and celebrate our nation's independence on the 4th of July. So also the Lord's Table points backward to remember a specific historical event. Even an idea. What does it commemorate? Well, it commemorates, it brings to remembrance the death of Christ. We know this because as Jesus distributes the elements, He tells the disciples, take, eat, this is My body. And in Luke, He says more specifically, this is My body, which is given for you. The bread, therefore, not only serves as a remembrance of the Lord's death, but of the substitutionary nature of His death. You recall how I said last week that Jesus sovereignly directed his own death. Well, in the hours before his death, Jesus delivers this bread as a symbol of the fact that he's dying for his disciples. This is really where the Passover element to the meal comes into play. Uh, If you look here in Matthew 26, uh, back in verses 17 to 19, Jesus gives his instructions about finding the place where they are to celebrate the Passover together. From this we learn that the Lord's table is a Passover meal. That's actually, there's actually a lot of debate about how this could be. After all, in John's Gospel, it seems to indicate that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed as Jesus died on the cross on Friday. He even says in regards to Jesus' death that the guards did not break His legs on the cross as they did the two men crucified next to Jesus, quote, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of His bones will be broken. It would seem that the only Scripture that John could be referring to when he wrote that, would be Exodus 12.46, which says that the Israelites shall not break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. So John's point very clearly is that Jesus was offered up as the true and ultimate Passover lamb for the nation. And yet here in Matthew 26, we discover that Jesus and his disciples actually celebrated the Passover the night before his death. In Luke 22, Jesus even begins the meal by telling his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And We're going to come back to that until it is fulfilled idea in just a few moments. All, uh, all I mean to point out here is that Jesus clearly indicated that he intended this to be a Passover meal. Well, during this meal, Jesus is is reinterpreting the elements of the Passover in light of his death. And as he holds up the bread, he says, This is my body, which is given for you. That's important because what Moses taught was that the lamb served as a substitute for the firstborn of the people of Israel. In other words, when the angel of the Lord passed through the land of Egypt, the only reason why he passed over the houses whose doorposts had been marked with the blood of the lamb was was because the lamb had served as a substitute in place of the firstborn of Israel. After the Exodus, God even demanded that the Levites be given to serve Him exclusively as a substitute for the firstborn of Israel, which belonged to Him. When in the course of this meal, Jesus holds up the bread, He says, this is My body which is given for you. And the meaning of that, in this context, would not be lost on the disciples. Just like the Passover lamb, was offered up in the place of the firstborn during the exodus from Egypt. So also does the bread point to the fact that Jesus is offering himself up in their place. He's dying in order to redeem them, much in the same way that the lamb did during the exodus. The disciples are to take and eat the bread as a constant reminder of this fact that Jesus died as a substitute in their place. Jesus also says regarding the cup, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'll dive more specifically into the full meaning of this statement in just a few moments, but the point, once again, is that the cup is a remembrance of Jesus' death. It points back to the idea that Jesus shed his blood on the cross. So that's the second part of our definition. The Lord's table is number one, in ordinance. That number two, commemorates the death of Christ. And now number three, and this is where it starts to get more tricky. Number three, it symbolizes. It symbolizes. We'll get into what it symbolizes in just a moment, but before we get to that, I just want to highlight that the Lord's table is a symbol. Historically, it's not always been treated that way. When Jesus says, Take eat, this is my body, in verse twenty six, and when he says again, drink all of it, or drink of it all of you, uh, for this is my blood of the covenant, in verse twenty eight. Some have interpreted have interpreted that to mean that the elements of the Lord's table literally possess the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, teaches a view on the Lord's table known as transubstantiation. According to this view, at the moment the priest blesses the Lord's table, the elements are mysteriously, mysteriously transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I say mysteriously because... It doesn't appear to be the body and blood of the Lord to us in that moment, but that's what they would say is actually going on. Those elements are hidden from us, but once the elements are blessed by the priest, but, but it's the actual blood and body of Christ. In fact, historically, the priests alone were allowed to drink from the cup on behalf of the participants for fear of the fact that the communicants might spill the blood of Christ if the cup was shared. Lutherans abandoned this view during the Reformation in, in, favor of a view, in favor of a view called consubstantiation, in which they claim that the elements are not physically converted at communion, but that Christ is still actually bodily present in the elements themselves during the communion. If you can think of a sponge holding water, they would say that the elements are kind, of, they kind of work like that. Jesus is not the bread or the wine, But he is, quote, in, with, and under the elements. Lutherans differ from Catholics because they understand that one of the implications of transubstantiation is that it continually repeats Christ's sacrifice every time communion is performed. They rightly reject this idea, and consubstantiation is supposed to be a way of explaining the Lord's table that avoids that error. However, both Lutherans and Catholics agree that the statements, this is my body and this is my blood, are meant to be taken literally. And so they both adopt views that Jesus' body and blood are physically present either as or in the elements themselves when the table is celebrated. Listen, that's not what Jesus means when he says, this is my body and this is my blood. All Jesus means to say is that these elements represent his body and his blood. Again, the meal is a memorial. So he's speaking in metaphor. If you want a really simple illustration of what I mean by this, and only some of you may remember this. I may be dating myself when I share this with you. But a number of years back, there used to be this television commercial. And it was a public service announcement about the danger of drug use. And some of you probably already know where I'm going when I say that. And in this commercial, there was this man standing at a stove with a skillet and an egg. Right? And he would say, he'd hold up the egg and he'd say, this is your brain. And then he'd say, and this is your brain on drugs. And he'd crack the egg and empty it in the skillet, and the egg starts sizzling, and the man turns to the camera and asks, any questions? Obviously, no one went grabbing for their scalp when they first saw that commercial, right? The man was just, he was performing an object lesson in order to illustrate a point. The egg and the skillet are all metaphors meant to describe the effect that drug use can have on the brain. That's what he's going for. Well, when Jesus holds up the bread, and he says, this is my body, it's just like the man holding up the egg and saying, this is your brain. It's a metaphor. We know this is, this is true, not only because Jesus explicitly says, do this in remembrance of me, indicating that it's only meant to be a symbol that points back to a sacrifice. But I don't know if you ever thought about this, but we know this, but because when Jesus holds up this bread, he holds it up with his hand. In other words, Jesus can't possibly be in the elements of the Lord's table because when he first delivered the meal, he was holding those very same elements in his own hands. If Jesus has a physical body subject to the same kind of physical laws that we are, which it appears he does, with some, perhaps some exceptions after the resurrection, then he can't be in two places at once. Bodily, he is either in heaven at the right hand of the Father, or he is on earth. He can't be both. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is not just a man. He's also God. And as God, he possesses the attribute of omnipresence, which means that in his divine nature, he's able to be everywhere at once at the same time. But as it regards his human nature, which includes his physical bodily presence, he is only able to be in one place at one time. And resurrection of body aside, at the very least, when Jesus first delivered this ordinance before his death on the cross, he could not be in the elements. After all, very clearly he was holding them in his hands. So point being, Jesus clearly intends this to be a metaphor. He's not saying that he's in the bread or the wine when he holds up those elements. He's merely saying that they represent his body and his blood. Again, the point is to point back to what Jesus did with his body and his blood when he died on the cross. So the Lord's table is not just an ordinance that commemorates. It's an ordinance that symbolizes as well. The bread and the wine represent something. They point back to the death of Christ. In fact, you might even say, that the Lord's table commemorates by symbolizing. After all, it's these, so what's these? It's, uh, it's these elements that bring to remembrance what Jesus has done for us at the cross. So the Lord's table both commemorates and symbolizes, but what does it symbolize? And this brings us to our fourth point. Again, this is where it starts to get a bit more in-depth. Number four, it symbolizes participation in and anticipation of the new covenant through faith and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This one's a biggie. This one's a biggie. We've covered the basics. This is now where the real depth behind the Lord's table begins to take form. You know how I said a moment ago that at the beginning of the Passover, Luke says that Jesus told his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell tell you, I will not eat it. That's with reference to the Passover. Jesus says, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And I said we come back to that statement in a minute. Well, let's come back to that statement now and see what Jesus is saying with that. With that statement, Jesus clearly indicates, think about this, with that statement, Jesus clearly indicates that there will be future Passover celebrations in the kingdom of heaven. And that these celebrations will occur after the Passover has been, quote, Fulfilled. That's kind of a curious statement, isn't it? That the Passover will somehow be fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, wasn't the Passover a past event? Wasn't the prediction of the Passover fulfilled when the firstborn died in Egypt? What is there left to fulfill about the Passover? I think you find the answer to that question once you get down to what Jesus says about the cup. When Jesus takes the cup, he says in verses 27 and 28... Drink of it, all of you, for this is my for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Luke is more specific about this covenant, saying this cup is poured out for you. uh, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So you have two different descriptors of this cup. In one instance, Jesus says it is the new covenant in his blood. In the other, he says it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You go back to Jeremiah 31, and in it, God says through the prophet, maybe flip over there, Jeremiah 31, 31 31-34. God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, there also we see that with this covenant will come the forgiveness of sins. So that seems to be the reference that Jesus is making here. He's saying that He's establishing this new covenant with His death on the cross. Now, note the comparison that Jeremiah makes. He says in verse 32 that this new covenant will not be like the covenant that He made with their fathers on the day when God took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Of course, you know what that covenant is, right? Like what... what, Jeremiah is referring to there, that's the Mosaic Covenant, which God formed with Israel at Sinai immediately after the Passover. In fact, you go back to the Exodus, and it would appear that the very reason why God redeemed Israel from Egypt was so that they might serve Him. The Mosaic Covenant actually takes the form of an ancient treaty called a loyalty oath, which is a type of treaty where a subject swears fealty to a sovereign in exchange for the provision and protection provided by the sovereign. When God delivers Israel from Egypt, He delivers the Mosaic Covenant essentially as their new national constitution in which He has made their king. And in response to their faithfulness to that covenant, He promises to protect and bless them. You go back even further in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament and it becomes apparent that this covenant, this Mosaic Covenant that's made at Sinai when the people come out of Egypt during the Passover. This covenant is the means by which God intends to fulfill the promises that He swore to Abraham. Chiefly, that He would make Abraham uh, and his descendants a great nation through whom He would bless all the nations of the earth. The conditions of the Mosaic covenant, in which God promises to make Israel a kingdom of priests upon its observance, and in which God promises to bless the nation mightily whenever they keep it, These conditions are the means by which God will keep that covenant with Abraham and not only give Israel the land of Canaan, but also make Israel the greatest nation on the face of the earth. In other words, you look at the Passover, in which God frees Israel from bondage so that they might serve God and be blessed by Him. And that's the first major step towards the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The problem is that what you, is what you find here in the second half of Jeremiah 31-32. Jeremiah notes that Israel broke that covenant. They didn't keep it. So God made promises to Abraham, which he intended to fulfill through the Mosaic Covenant. The problem is that Israel repeatedly failed to keep that covenant, even ultimately resulting in their expulsion from the land of Canaan and a new kind of bondage under the likes of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and, of course, by the time of Jesus, the Romans. Here in Jeremiah 31, God says he's going to make a new covenant. And it's going to be a different one from the old one. In that the law in this covenant is no longer going to be written on tablets of stone. That is to say, outside of the people of Israel. Rather, it will be written inside of them on their very hearts. This is even emphasized by the fact that God says that they won't need teachers anymore. Because they're all going to be taught directly, personally by God. And of course, God also promises to forgive their disobedience and sin with this covenant. In other words, with this new covenant, God is going to accomplish what Israel failed to accomplish with the first one. He is going to provide their obedience. He's going to cause them to walk in His statutes. And if the first covenant was given so that as Israel obeyed, the promises made to Abraham might be fulfilled, well, then you can guess what's going to happen once Israel finally obeys in this new covenant. All the promises made to Abraham are going to be fulfilled. Israel is going to finally and permanently possess the land of Canaan. They will become the greatest of all the nations of the earth, and all the nations will be blessed through them. So therefore, when Jesus begins this meal by saying, I will not eat this meal again until it is fulfilled, referring to the Passover, and then he takes the elements of this meal and he says, this is my body given for you, and this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Can you see what he's driving at here? He's saying that what he's about to do at the cross, he's going to ratify this new covenant. You go back to Exodus 24, and when the original covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was confirmed with the people, The people of Israel brought peace and burnt offerings. And Moses took half of the blood from those sacrifices and threw it against the altar. And then he took the other half and he threw it on the people. And this is how they confirmed covenants in the Old Testament. It was through sacrifice. The blood sprinkled on the altar represented God's commitment to the covenant. The blood sprinkled on the people represented their commitment to keep that covenant. Of course, Israel failed to keep that first covenant. They broke it. And so now what the cup represents is that God has confirmed a new covenant through the blood of Jesus. Again, Jesus is, is making this covenant in His blood. And now, of course, this is not a sacrifice that is, made to be, that is going to be made over and over again. Hebrews 9 and 10 indicates that this was a once-for-all sacrifice. And so what do you think this symbolizes when we drink the cup that points back to this Passover meal, this cup which Jesus says represents the blood of the covenant. It symbolizes our participation in this covenant. Blood is not sprinkled on us, but we take the drink that symbolizes the blood and we drink it as a symbol of our participation in this covenant. In the same way, Jesus does not have us eat the lamb There's only one lamb, and that is Jesus. But when we eat the bread, we eat it as a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice for us, which was made in our place, in which we participate in by faith when we eat the bread. So this meal indicates our participation in the new covenant that Jesus ratified with His death. And as we look back to that sacrifice, knowing that it's already been completed, and that we are participants in it, it means that we also anticipate the ultimate fulfillment of this Passover meal. In the kingdom of heaven, the new covenant has been ratified, and there's a sense in which we can see the glimpses of these promises presently. We've received, for instance, the Holy Spirit, uh, through which Paul says in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 3 that Jesus does what the law could not do by providing an obedience that comes from inside of us instead of merely being written outside of us on tablets of stone. So there's, we see some of these things in relation to the new covenant kind of coming to be even now. However, we've clearly not seen the fulfillment of these promises to Israel. Not yet. They've not repented and believed. They do not yet walk in God's commands. And so they presently remain in exile apart from the restoration and forgiveness promised in passages like Jeremiah 31. In fact, even our own participation in the blessing of the covenant is not complete. Not yet. Not yet. Since we certainly do not obey God in all things, right? Nor can it be said of us that we no longer need teachers since we're taught of God. That doesn't, that doesn't work for us. We're not there yet. A foreshadowing of these promises is occurring now in the church, but they're certainly not complete. And so we wait, and with Jesus, we look forward to the day when we might eat this meal on the other side of history, when we're eating the meal looking back on what God has done, not looking forward to what he will do. Every time we eat this meal we express we express both what Jesus has done at the cross and what he therefore will do at his return. We look both backward and on this basis the basis of what we see there we look forward as well. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11:26 he says as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Incidentally uh, just note this. Incidentally, participants in the Passover meal drink four cups during the meal, uh, all of which are tied to one of four promises in Exodus 6, verses 6 to 7. Exodus 6, 6 to 7 states, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's the first promise. I will deliver you from slavery to them. That's the second. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's the third. Fourth, he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I think this is really cool. Just kind of follow along here if you can. You know, the cup that that Jesus tells the disciples represents the new covenant in his blood, it would appear that's the third cup of the Passover meal, which is tied to the promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Jesus says, I'm never going to drink the fruit of the vine again after that. That's apparently the last cup that Jesus drinks before his death. The fourth cup, the last one which Jesus apparently leaves on the table, is tied to the promise, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's what we're still looking forward to in the Passover meal. That's what we're going to see fulfilled. Whenever we participate in the Lord's table, it's this fourth cup that we anticipate which we will drink with Christ when the Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. Let's look now at the last part of our definition. We've seen that the Lord's table is an ordinance. We've seen that it commemorates the death of Christ. It also symbolizes both our participation in and anticipation of the new covenant. Finally, number five. It also symbolizes our fellowship with Jesus Christ and with all those who believe in Christ. If you remember just a couple of weeks ago, we studied the judgment of the sheep and the goats at the end of Matthew 25. In that passage, Jesus says that on this day of judgment that will follow His return to the earth, He'll tell the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me food. I was thirsty, and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed Me. I was naked, and you clothed Me. I was sick, and you visited Me. I was in prison, and you came to Me. The sheep are puzzled by this judgment because Jesus hasn't been on the earth until that time. And so they ask him, they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And Jesus says that the king will answer them in that day. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus then turns and rejects the goats for the exact same reason, because they did not do it to one of the least of these. They did not do it to Jesus. Jesus bases His ultimate decision on heaven and hell, on the treatment that was shown to His brothers, that is, His disciples. We ask ourselves why this is so. Why does Jesus indicate that love for Christ is expressed by a love for His body. And we saw that Jesus not only enjoys a kind of familial union with His disciples based on God's elective purposes, but that He also enjoys a very real spiritual union with them as well. In fact, this spiritual union occurs through the Holy Spirit, who Jesus provides through His ratification of the new covenant on the cross. It is as Jesus ratifies the New Covenant through His death on the cross that He then sends the Spirit to indwell us and cause us to walk in God's statutes. It is through this same Spirit that Jesus abides with us and enjoys a very special kind of fellowship with us here on earth. This is all captured quite succinctly when Paul writes in Romans 8, 7-10. He says, The mind that that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot... He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have, and know how he phrases this, he says, whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And then he says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There Paul says that it's impossible to please God apart from the Holy Spirit. Just a few verses earlier, he notes that God did what the law could not do by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin so that He might condemn sin in the flesh and the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This is all in accord with the New Covenant promise to write the law upon our hearts, to do what was uh, imperfect about the Mosaic Covenant. It all happens by the Holy Spirit, who enables us to do what we couldn't do uh, 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 with all that was given in the Mosaic Law. In the passage I just read, this Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And Paul says, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. See, it is through this indwelling Spirit that Christ communes with us directly in constant fellowship with His body. That's all New Covenant promise. It is because of what Jesus did when He ratified the New Covenant that we now presently enjoy a kind of intimate fellowship with Him, a fellowship so close, so close, that on the Day of Judgment, Jesus can say to those standing before Him, as you did, as you did, uh, as you did it to one of the least of these My brothers, you did it to Me. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10:16 to 17. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul says that when we bless the cup and break the bread of the Lord's table, we actively participate in the the blood and body of Christ. We have a kind of union with it as we identify with Christ by faith. Likewise, he says that there is one bread that we break because although there are many of us, we are all one body since we share in the same bread. Because of what the Lord's table represents, it becomes a symbol, it becomes a symbol not only of our union with Christ, but by virtue of our shared union with Christ, our union with one another as well. Like if you can sort of picture a bicycle wheel in your mind, when we believe in Christ, which is expressed, of course, in our participation of the Lord's table, this symbol of the new covenant made in His blood, when we uh, uh, believe in Christ, which is expressed in this, we're joined to Jesus. He's at the hub of the wheel. You're at a point along the outside of the wheel, and through your faith, you're tied to Jesus like a spoke on the wheel. Well, when others believe they too are joined to the same hub. The result is that by virtue of the fact that all these individual spokes are tied together by the one unifying hub, they form one wheel. This is the picture that Paul paints in 1 Corinthians 10. When we participate in the elements of the Lord's table, we participate in the death of Christ himself. And since we all participate in the same death, we all eat of the one bread. We are therefore one body. The Lord's table, therefore, becomes a picture both of our union with Christ and of our union with one another since we all share of the same sacrifice and are joined to the same bread. If you could think once again of the concepts of of transubstantiation and consubstantiation, there's another view of the Lord's table which says that when we celebrate the Lord's table, Jesus is not physically present with His body, but He is spiritually present among us. I don't know that we can say that this is uniquely true when we celebrate the Lord's table. But it is certainly true insofar as whenever the body of Christ assembles, Jesus is among us because He indwells all those who believe in His name. This is important. In our Sunday school class this semester, we've been studying worship. And as we've studied worship, one of the things we've noted is that worship changes dramatically from the Old Testament to the New. Because in the Old Testament, there's a sense in which God inhabited the temple. And that meant you had to go to the temple to worship in the presence of God. What's different in the New Testament is that there is no physical temple. And the reason is because the New Testament indicates that by virtue of this indwelling that occurs in the New Covenant, You are all individually temples of the Holy Spirit who is within you. And yet you are all also corporately the temple of God by virtue of the corporate indwelling of the same Spirit. This means that you no longer have to go anywhere to worship God because God is always with you. And yet at the same time, when the body assembles, it represents this coming together of the various stones that form this one grand spiritual temple of God. What this means is that the Lord's table is not just a fitting symbol of what has happened at the cross. And it not only points to the redemption that Jesus will accomplish in the future at His return, but it also becomes a fitting expression of what's happening presently whenever the church assembles to meet with one another. We assemble as a body indwelled by Christ. We are united to one another by virtue of our union with Him the Lord's table is a picture of that fellowship. It symbolizes both our fellowship with Christ and our fellowship with all those who believe in Him. So there's a basic definition of the Lord's table. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate this meal. Of course, there's probably more that could be said about each of these points, but that's at least a basic definition of this ordinance. Now, what I'd like to do next week is come back and discuss the application of this ordinance. We know what it is now. So then what does it do? I want to talk about that. What is the role that this ordinance plays in the church? And how should it be observed? Uh, you know, how should it you know what what should we do with the elements? How often should we observe it? Who should participate in it? These are some of the more practical issues concerning the Lord's table that I'd like to explore with you next week. In the meantime, we're going to close our worship service this worship service this morning by Observing the Lord's table together. Uh, In case you didn't notice, we did delay our regular observance of the Lord's table by one week. uh, And this is why uh, I wanted us to celebrate this meal with its meaning fresh on our minds here this morning. Uh, So if you wouldn't mind, uh, please go ahead and bow your heads with me and let's prepare ourselves for the celebration of this meal by thanking the, the Lord together. Let's pray.